The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you made it through the weekend unscathed and get back to work and kind of ready to go. I hope everybody got kind of a rest and recovery over the weekend. I know it's tough to do over Thanksgiving weekend, especially as first responders. We probably had a shift or two in there. I, I know for myself, I had three shifts from Wednesday through Sunday and then Thanksgiving on Thursday and, and all that goes along with it. And and then for me, the, the added emotion of being the first one without my mom and kind of having her on my mind throughout the weekend as well. And uh, it doesn't lend itself to a ton of rest and recovery, but uh, it was still a good weekend all in all in general. And um, I look forward to, to uh, I don't know, I guess I look forward to moving moving on from it because I got that first out of the way. And now I know that I've got another first coming down the, down the road here in a, in a few weeks with Christmas and, and New Year's and, and then going into everything next year, which is going to be a first. Uh, it's, it's a weird feeling, and I, I'm getting used to it. I'm, I'm adapting to it. And I know I've spoken a lot about grief and sadness and death and I don't want to, I don't want to get back on the subject just to let you guys know that, that, you know, I'm starting to deal with that better. Um, I'm starting to have more moments of the normal as opposed to the moments of, of just absolute sadness. And so that, that's a positive thing, but then, it, you know, those still creeps in with the, with the, the questions about, oh, the guilt of, of feeling happy. And, um, somebody reached out to me after one of my intros and said, you know, after she dealt with her own grief with, with a death in her family, that, that she knows that moving forward and being happy and living a life is the best way you can honor that person. And words like that always help. And and I agree, it is the best way I can honor her is to live a life that she would be not only proud of, but interested in, I think is, is a key. I mean, I don't want to live a boring life. And so I want to get out there and do some stuff and, and enjoy it. And, and I guess at the same time, honor her by doing that. It came into today to record this intro with, without any idea what I was going to talk about. The last few weeks I've, I've come in unscripted, but at least I've had a framework of what I wanted to speak about. Today, I really don't have an idea what I want to talk about. My, uh, my brain is kind of lagging. And it doesn't lend itself well to speaking extemporaneously and uh, just making it up as I go. It just, uh, it doesn't lend itself well to it. So I had a couple of themes that popped into my head and one of them was about change and, and uh, how change is inevitable. And I saw a quote, oh man, I don't know how long ago it was. It's been a while now. I saved it and uh, it came up today and it's, by a woman named Margaret Mayhe. And she says, it changes you forever, but you are changing forever anyway. So everything you experience, and this, this is obviously just my interpretation, but everything you experience is going to change you. And it changes you forever because you're not going to go back to who I was even five minutes ago, let alone five years ago. 
So everything changes you forever. But you're still going to have to experience whatever it is because you're going to change forever anyway. So I think at that point you start to, you, you start to, you, if you think of it that way, you're going to change forever anyway. I think you have to start taking ownership of how that change comes about. And sometimes you can't, you can't own or, or you can't own what the, the circumstances all the time. So somebody is going to do a, is, is going to do something that affects you and you're going to change from it, but you can change. There's that word again. You can change how you react to how, to what happens. And that's how you start to guide your life and your future. But you can also take a very active role in your change and you can, you can start putting steps in front of each other. And, uh, you know, as cliche as it sounds, nothing's going to change until something changes. And that's kind of where I am now. Nothing's going to change until something changes. And I have to make some change because I have been stagnant for a while. I spoke about that the other, the other week. Um, I have been stagnant for a while and, and some of it is just kind of a chronic stress and I need to start to recover from some of that. There's a, um, there's one that jumped out at me today and it's a, it's from, I believe it's attributed to Buddha. I'm not sure, but I believe it's attributed to Buddha and it says, respect your body when it's asking for a break, respect your mind when it's seeking rest, honor yourself when you need a moment for yourself. And I think we can all learn from that, that it's okay to say, wait a second, I need to do this for me. I need to take time for me. I need to, to take a little bit of time, clear my mind, rest my body, and, and then, then come back and, and, and hit it hard again and start moving forward. And I think I'm kind of at that spot a little bit. I started this show a year and a half, almost two years ago. And, uh, I didn't know what it would entail, but it, as it turns out, it entails a lot of serious issues, a lot of in-depth conversations and it, ta- it does take a toll. You know, I listen to these shows at least twice before I release them. So I listen to, so actually three times cause I listen to them when, when I interview guests and then I listen to them a couple of times as I edit them and, and quote unquote package the show together to release it. I just finished listening to today's episode just a few minutes ago. And I'm, that's why I'm recording this intro right now is because I just finished listening to it. I'll record this intro. I'll package the show and I'll, then I'll, I'll schedule it for release tomorrow morning. But that being said, when, when these shows are, are, are heavy, I'm listening to that three times over and, uh, I start to, it starts to weigh on me a little bit. And I think that it's a good time to, to do my winter break coming up here in December and to respect my body because it's asking for a break and to respect my mind because it's seeking some rest and then honoring myself because I do need a moment for myself. Uh, I need a moment to regroup. I need a, I need a moment to rest. I need, I need a moment to figure out the direction of the show for the next year. So. In a couple of weeks, I'll put out my last episode for the year. I'll take a few weeks off, come back with new shows, probably mid to end of January. And, uh, there's going to be some, 
there'll be some changes coming forward. Nothing major. Um, but I, I'm going to have to work on some changes for the show. I'm going to have to work on the way that I do the show. I'm going to have to work on the way that I take care of myself uh, between work and the show. And I had to do something for me. I'm not, I haven't been doing enough for me. Um, I need to get out as I, as I like to preach, you got to get outside and enjoy it. And I haven't done that enough. I need to get off my ass more. Uh, I need to get, you know, I just need to get out there and, and enjoy some things. I need to find a way to bring this show to you guys that, that maintains the integrity of it, maintains the essence of it, but doesn't wear me down at the same time. Um, I'd love a f few shows in here where we just laugh a little bit. Uh, and I'm seeking some of that and I'm, I'm doing some of that with, with bringing some pro professional voices on as well as the stories. Um, I don't realize sometimes how much I get weighed down and then I neglect my, my own self care. And so I need to make some changes to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. I'm checking in with myself. I'm being honest with myself. And if I'm worn down, I take a break. I'm not doing that. I haven't done that recently, which is, which feels weird for me to say, because at some days I feel like I'm not doing anything, but that's more of a, it's more of a stuck in a rut kind of thing than a, than a um, productivity thing. So back to change. Change is a big word. And when you've been through a lot of change in a short amount of time, you want to seek some stability and some sense of, not necessarily comfort, but sense of security. And I need to find a way to create that again for myself. I guess I need to find, as the quote said, I need to find a way to honor myself, to recharge, to come out with fresh new ideas, come out with an energy that, that the show deserves. And, and I guess an energy that I deserve more than anything. I need to, I know some personal accountability needs to be put in place. I need to take better care of myself. I need to eat better. I need to, to not isolate away from friends and family as much as I have. And change. I need to make change to move forward. So look for some of that to come up in the future. Show's not going away. Show will stay here. I'm still going to really release episodes. New episodes will, will start again in January. Um, we got a couple more new episodes for till the, you know, this year, this one, and, and maybe one or two more after this one. Um, and then I'll step away and take a little bit of a break, kind of refresh, retool, and maybe reimagine some and then come out and come out swinging and, and, and uh, reintroduce myself to the world, I guess, is the way, I, the way it feels right now. So with that being said, let's get on with this. And I want to welcome you to episode 93 of the things we all carry. 
it blows my mind that I said 93. I'm creeping up on, on 100 episodes, and, and I, I didn't know where this show was going to go. But coming up on 100 episodes is fantastic in my mind. Uh, today, I, I, um, I'm releasing a show with a gentleman out of Charlotte right now. But he came to Charlotte by way of Pennsylvania and Maryland. He, his name is Jordan Hood. He started as a volunteer firefighter in 2002 in Pennsylvania in a very small volunteer company. He moved on to York, PA in 2008. So he took a step up to about 600, 700 runs a year. And then he started applying to jobs up and down the East Coast and ended up landing in Prince George's County, Maryland in 2013. And if you guys don't know about Prince George's, the one thing you need to know is it's busy. It's a combination system. It's a large system, borders DC, and they run a, a lot, a lot of calls. And uh, that's kind of been the theme. Each position he's done, he's he's brought more calls, more trauma, and more stress to his life. He uh, He ultimately left Prince George's County for a city job. And I say city, quote unquote, because he's always wanted to be a city firefighter. And he's been with Charlotte, North Carolina for over five years now. Jordan reached out to me when he listened to my episode with Mike Nasty on Tip of the Spear Leadership. Turns out that Jordan was, uh, rode, a, rode an engine with Mike Nasty in Prince George's County. And they had a, a fire, which they both have spoken about. And Jordan gets into that fire towards the end of this episode. No, excuse me, not towards the end, more like the middle of this episode and how it affected him and how it affected Mike and how they move forward from it. He's done a lot. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot and he's, he's taken some ownership of everything lately. And that's the, that's the best part. He's taken some ownership. He's made some changes and he's come out the other end, just a better person, a better husband, a better father and uh, a better firefighter. And hopefully in the future, a better leader because he's looking to, to move up in the ranks. So you guys sit back. Tune in, listen, and uh, enjoy. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Ready to go? Have this yes, uh, have cool. this conversation. Let's see where we end up. I can't speak English. All, of a all right. Welcome back to the things we all carry. Today I have Jordan Hood with me. Jordan, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks I'm for doing well. Me. Oh man, of course. Thanks for reaching out. You you reached out to me after listening to I think my episode on tip of the spear, correct? Yes, sir. Yep. And uh, you 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 uh, your friends or at least. You, used to be friends or whatever it is with Mike Nasty. Um, yeah. good guy. I know, and I'm kidding. I'm giving Mike a hard time because he'll listen to some of that and hear it. But, um, you, yeah. you have to work with Mike and, and that's one of the reasons you reached out. Um, yeah. he, he hooked us up somehow. He, he texted me and before I, before I could finish texting him back, you, he had, he had given you my number and I had a text waiting for me from you. So, um, mm -hmm. happy to say we got a chance to sit down and talk and you, uh, we were just talking. You started volunteering in 2002. How old were you in 2002 when you started volunteering? Uh, 2002 would have been eight, 18. Yeah. So you're one of those guys that started early and you were, you, you know, not to insult anybody, but your brain's not even formed yet when you're starting that. And that's, that's, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You don't, we don't know the, 
difference between a, you know, a good Friday night and a bad Friday night. Right. I mean, it, it, so before we get into to your story, let's, uh, let's get my first question out of the way. Let me, let me know what the last song was that you, you heard or you listened to. <laughs> Van Halen dreams. Okay. All right. Yep. Well, you, you, you might be dating yourself a little bit with that one, but That's we'll take okay. it. I like it. Even though I'm making fun yeah. of you, I'm older than you are. So it doesn't matter. Halen, Foo Fighters and Five Finger Death Punch. Were you at the gym or is that just normal? No, that's just normal. That's Good. Every All right. Day. I like it. I like it. Cool. All right. So where are we finding it today? Where, where are you calling me from? Uh, uh, yeah, located in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Here, uh, just shy of five years. Uh, next okay. week will actually be five years. My, uh, my football team was just down there beat you guys up a little bit. So I'm happy <laughs> to say, I'm, I'm sure you're not a, a, a Panthers fan, but maybe you are. No, not by any means. I'm not a, not an NFL fan. All right. Um, where'd you grow up though? So you end up in Charlotte five years ago. How'd you get to Charlotte? Where'd you grow up? What was family life like? What's your, fa- what's, what was school like? All of that. Let's, let's get into that a little bit. So I actually grew up in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half North of Philadelphia and an hour and a half West of New York city, uh, Lehigh Valley, Allentown area. Um, parents divorced when they were, or excuse me, when I was nine years old. Um, I was a single child for, for, you know, uh, roughly about nine, 10 years. Um, shortly after all that, my parents divorced and the brother and sister kind of came along just before their divorce. Um, you know, and lived as, uh, you know, myself and my two siblings with my mom. Um, I would say probably about 45 minutes South from where I grew up or, you know, was born, so to speak. Um, and, you know, school life or home life was, you know, I was much older than my sister and brother by, uh, about 10 years and started, um, you know, kind of finding my way into the, into the sports, if you will, we were, the town that we lived in was a very, very small town, less than 2,500 people, you know, talk about these you know, one town or one, uh, traffic light towns. And that was the town they grew up in very, very small town, very close, if you will, community. Um, and basically I knew two things at the time, uh, sports and working, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's, you know, some followers or listeners from the state of Pennsylvania and a lot of people joke about Texas having such a or the state of Texas having such a big football program, but anybody that knows high school sports is Pennsylvania is a humongous, uh, high school football state, if you will. So, like I said, we were a very small town. We did rather well in football and wrestling. Um, I wasn't a wrestler, but I, you know, I played football and, uh, junior year, actually my sophomore year went out on an injury. Uh, ended up having knee surgery junior year, ended up blowing my MCLL in the same knee, which was about a six month time frame. And we were, we actually won our, our division that year. And we were, um, falling into our senior year, which would have been 2002. Um, we were projected to, I think go like 500 on a year and long story short, we ended up, um, 
becoming second up or yeah, second or runner, second runner or second in the state in two-way football. And that was uh, massive for our area, for our league, for our, uh, you know, our community. Um, and again, I, you know, sports were always, I think a, a big impact because that's all I knew. And if I wasn't playing football, you know, I was, I was working, whether it was landscaping or, you know, working on some, some of my buddy's farms and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, during that time, obviously nine eleven hit, um, and, you know, I, I kind of had a background in the fire service through my dad being in a volunteer at a young age. Um, but I really didn't know much about it. I knew the department that was in our community wasn't very busy. You know, you know, I joked around about it the other day and I think we ran less than a hundred cold a year. Um, but I, I knew, you know, going into the spring of, uh, actually, I'm sorry, 2001 would have been, uh, 9-11, um, going into 2000 or the spring of 2002, we, uh, you know, I started looking at what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and knew that the military wasn't going to save me as much as I regret it nowadays. You know, it's probably one of my biggest life regrets, but it's something I've come to know and come to understand that given the time, you know, with my injuries in football and, and other, you know, just beating myself up in a, in a weight room, I really didn't have a choice. And so I started looking at, um, trying to go to the, the construction trade, you know, all my buddies had the nice, big, fancy pickup trucks and houses at a couple, you know, early twenties. And I, that's what I wanted. I wanted, uh, the modest life, but I also knew that I, I had to work hard to get it. And I remember graduating on a Friday night and I started working that Monday morning in the con construction trade, uh, working uh, with one of my uncles actually. And, um, you know, worked as a laborer in the, the dirt or the, the heavy earth side of things, if you will. Um, you know, and, and really found a passion for, you know, it, taking something that was given to us, you know, and I, I know this sounds probably cliche or kind of stupid, but I mean, just the fact of you pull up to a open cornfield. And you're given the opportunity to transform it into something different. And, uh, you, you know, it, I was able to kind of get my feet under me, get some contacts and start building my, my reputation at a young age. And, um, I kind of bounced around a little bit and ended up working for a, a much larger, larger construction company at the time, uh, roughly three years later. And I, you know, I was given the opportunity to do a lot more and I was, you know, given the opportunity to be given, uh, circumstances and situations, even as a heavy equipment operator that some 20, 30 year guys had no business doing. And, you know, and I look back now, you know, 18 years ago, and I think between my interaction, you know, we were just joking around about Van Halen. But I can remember being in middle school in eighth grade and some of the biggest impacts on my life and 
what have gotten to me where I am today has been, you know, those football coaches, those mentors that I had in high school football, and then transition into the first five to seven years of adulthood in the early twenties in the construction industry and learning about pride and compassion. And, you know, uh, again, I think that has carried me to where I am today. And that's what, you know, we talk a lot about morals and ethics and having an ethos for yourself. And that's, you know, that's kind of where my, 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 my journey pretty much started. And, you know, that's, that's who I am today. That's where it's based off of. Let's, let's go back just a little bit before yeah. you graduate high school. Cause I know that, that with some of this stuff, um, some of the things you talk about and, and with depression or anxiety or whatever, whatever diagnoses we, we talk about, some of that happened while you were still in high school, correct? Yes. Yeah. Or, or was it high school or was it even younger than that? So, uh, yeah, I was diagnosed with ADD at a very young age. And I remember being on the, you know, the Ritalin and, um, you know, and acting out in class and, you know, being the, I don't necessarily know if it was the, uh, you know, the ADD side or the, the board, you know, middle school kid that just didn't want to be there. But yeah, I was diagnosed with ADD at a young age and, um, you know, and again, I don't know, I really kind of torn because I never really talked about this before either, but, you know, I did have an incident where I was at a young age, um, I wouldn't even say on age, but early teens and, you know, dating your first girl. And mm-hmm. of course you get the, the breakup letter and, you know, I don't want to go out with you anymore. And, you know, and, and at that time, like you're, you know, really not sure which way to go. And I remember, you know, having, having faults of harm to myself, but I, I, you know, I never really, I obviously I never carried it out, but it was. Again, I don't know if it was a correlation between the ADD at a young age or, or what the transition was, but, you know, and all very different. I mean, I'm sure everybody, you know, or not everybody, but young, every young individual goes through a, a spell, so to speak, at, at, you know, going through their first relationship, if you will. I was going to say, I think everyone can relate to that feeling of, yeah. oh man, this is the end. This is the worst it's ever going to be. Yeah. And in just to realize, no, it's just that you're, you've got a young, immature brain and, and, you know, it's something that's been yanked away from you that you thought was super important to you. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, all right. So you, you, you get into construction, heavy equipment operator. And I mean, at that day, they had to seem at that age, you had to seem like you're on top of the world, right? Yeah, most certainly. Um, you know, the money was good. The the things I wanted in life were starting to transpire, you know, the, the $50,000 pickup, um, you know, the potential house on the horizon, um, you know, every life was good, but there was one thing that was holding me back and that was, and I was more so, again, I was never diagnosed with it, but I think, uh, was addicted to alcohol. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to go through a 30 pack of Miller light on a, uh, you know, a Friday and a Saturday night or a half a case of Molten triple X, you know, a night, you know, again, you know, all I knew was construction Monday through Saturday. 
And all I knew at nighttime was drinking beer. Yeah. And I, I went from, you know, being a 220 pound stout, you know, pretty ripped lineman playing in, you know, uh, all-star games and second runner state or, you know, second runner up in the, in the state of Pennsylvania to, uh, 375, 380 pound guy in a couple of years. And yeah, it's quite a change, isn't it? Yeah. Big time. And I got, I have to imagine that once that change starts to happen, you're obviously not blaming the alcohol because you don't even realize that that's what's doing it. But then you start, I would imagine, I know when I got out of shape in my early twenties, I felt like it was all me. It was like, man, I'm just a piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I didn't even, like I said, I was, I was just, that paycheck was coming in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I thought I had to roll by the balls. I really yeah. did. I, I didn't know anything different, you know? Um, you know, I always joke there were, there should have been several times I was either six feet under or behind bars. And I mean, it, looking back, it was, it was stupid, but you sure. know, in the same coke and it's like, again, you're, you're immature. You just don't, you don't know any better. No. And you don't, you don't care to know any better. Yeah. So how do you, how do you find the volunteer house in 2002? while you're doing construction. So where we lived in town, uh, the assistant chief actually lived right behind us. And, um, you know, I started, you know, getting to know him a little bit. We kind of hadn't, there was, it's kind of a weird setup, but we had an alleyway. We called it an alley, but it was blacktop that kind of sat in the back of our houses, so to speak. And then his house was behind the, like the alley, it was just a weird setup, but, um, like I got to know him, uh, I got to know the chief and turns out that the chief at the time, his, uh, his family, his relationship to my uncle that I spoke about earlier. Um, and you know, just again, just a small community started getting to know a little bit more and more people, um, you know, the the borough or the, the street worker that took care of the streets. I mean, I got to run to the, you know, convenience store, getting coffee one morning, and, you know, I'm talking to him and just, you know, that, that small town feel, um, and, you know, sort of know people and just, you know, every time the, the house siren would go off, it was like, I'd be running to the door to see what was going on or, you know, here I am in my early twenties. I hate to have hit it, but it's like, I, I still had that, that, uh, urge to, to do something. You know, I basically grew up in a firehouse at a young age, you know, from, I'd say from the time I was born up until about seven, eight years old, you know, my mom would drop me off at the firehouse every Saturday morning. I'd help the guys, you know, wash fire trucks, you know, back then, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon to have you know, a soda machine inside the firehouse and the bottom two were either PBR or Schmitz. Yeah. You know, and you go there with a quarter, Hey, here's a quarter, go get yourself a soda and give me a PBR. I mean, yeah, that's just how it was. You know? So I think, you know, I felt like I needed, I needed something in life as much as I was working, I needed something to kind of give me that feel, and I don't want to even say of doing something 
to help somebody, but just that feel of adrenaline. You know, I was growing up, you know, I was always a fan of MacGyver in the A-Team and like, those were my shows and I would, I'd binge watch them right now if I could get them on TV. You would, you would see me locked in the room for three weeks straight and I'd watch every episode. But just something about like that adrenaline of them being presented with a challenge, so to speak. And I, I felt like I needed that in my life and that's kind of where you know, assistant chief that looked behind me was like, Hey, we're going to have, you know, weekly drill Monday night at seven o'clock, just show up. And that was it. And I remember we were the first Monday night I went to a drill with the local community fire department was, uh, I had to hook up to a hydrant and the rest was history and here right. I am. So you find your way in there 2002. When do you officially become a volunteer? Um, so it would have been that fall of 2002. Okay. So I graduated high school in June, started, you know, kind of hanging out, going through some things in that fall of 2002, uh, believe I was voted in as a member. And then the following spring of 2003 is when I started taking, you know, the required classes. Right. Uh, per, per the chief. And. You're, you're working construction a day, volunteer on, and I'm assuming it's respond from home. Yes. Yeah. So that's just, whenever it happens, you go in and, and how busy is this department? Cause you said it was a smaller department. So how, how, how many calls do you think you're running? Like I said, if we did, if we did 115 a year, I mean, that was, that was a lot. Right. A lot. So, yeah, I mean, I think we averaged right around a hundred, hundred or five. And to be honest with you, I think they're probably up to 145 now. Right. Know, 20 years later, it's like I said, it's, it's such a small community. So, I mean, they they have not seen it grow like other, other places. But you had your share of significant calls as a volunteer. Yeah. And yeah. And I would say even then it was, you know, the. The minor fender benders, the, the, uh, the property damage accidents, if you will, every now and then we'd catch a fire. Um, you know, if we went to five working fires a year, whether it was in town or mutual aid, I mean, that was a, a, a substantial amount for, you know, our particular area. Um, but you know, I, I started getting, uh, started getting to see some things I, cause we had, at the time, we did not respond on any, uh, or let me take that back. So we, we responded on traffic accidents, but nothing, you know, substantial. And like I said, it was such a, you know, a, a small community that we really never had real bad accidents or we never really had, you know, a, a fatality unless we had to actually go outside of the, out of the town or out of the borough of, mm -hmm. of that. So. I know that we talked about a certain fire mm -hmm. and I know that, I know that it played with you a little bit. What, did, what year does that happen? So that had to be around 2005. Okay. 2004, 2004, 2005. Yeah. It was, uh, you want me to kind of go into that? Yeah. Let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, it's, it's it, the floor is yours, man. You talk about whatever you want to talk about. So, um, you know, 
about a year, year and a half after work, after I got the, you know, the required classes for the basically ride as a, as a firefighter or fireman. Um, so a weeknight we get this bad for, uh, I didn't remember if it came out as a, a smoke inside or investigation inside of some sort. And, um, so, you know, I drive up to the firehouse and get on the first engine out and we're going down the road. The assistant chief that looked right behind me, he's going to the scene. And, um, I think we had like three or four guys on the engine that night. You know, again, we're all coming from different parts of town and, uh, get to the firehouse, pull up and it's a, you know, it's a Northeast typical boom, two story duplex, nothing, nothing substantial about it, balloon frame. And, uh, so we go into the left side, left side of the duplex, if you will, and make it up top or up into the attic with, uh, the assistant chief and one of the captains and they're like, you know, we're getting smoke coming through the, the party wall, if you will, up in the attic. Right. But nothing was, nothing was evident from the exterior on the, the right side exposure. So. We go back or, you know, assistant chief, like, Hey, we need to get inside next door and you know, go, go from there. See, see what's going on. We're, we're getting smoke. We can smell it. There's obviously something burning on the other side. So we go back downstairs myself, um, a captain, um, or one of our captains. And, you know, I, he was a assistant chief got one time then kind of stepped down for some, you know, a year or two and had some family issues going on and. So he kind of more or less took me under his wing, um, if you will, with, uh, you know, weightlifting and getting back into shape a little bit. And then luckily he happened to be on this fire. And, um, so, you know, we go back downstairs, force the door, get a line and, you know, to this day, I can still remember the house and it was, um, it was, it, it was so awkward and eerie because the gentleman had placed black plastic black or excuse me black plastic garbage bags on all the windows so it looked like it was vacant yeah um, you know just uh newspapers out in the front like it, nothing nothing appeared that it was a normal occupancy um and nobody really knew the the gentleman and mm-hmm. we had no idea there was anybody even even in there so you know long story short we uh we had smoked probably about halfway down and we were able to find the steps and, um, you know, it, it, the, the whole house just kind of felt fairly for a loop. You know, I'm brand new. I got less than, you know, two years in the fire service. I'm, you know, green behind the years and, you know, a lot going on. It's probably maybe my second or third interior fire everything else has been outside at that point besides you know a couple smaller house fires but uh so we make it up the, up to the top of the steps um again just like a typical northeast home it's a you know a long long hallway that runs parallel to the party wall you, know, you got bathroom on the, the furly side and you got bedrooms in the middle and then the masters up front and uh i remember we made it to the hallway and we had smoke you know it was like I said, it wasn't, it was pretty thick. It wasn't, it wasn't pushes down to the ground. It wasn't, you know, like a, you know, high heat temps or anything, but I remember getting 
um, I was the second one on the line or second one on the, you know, back behind the captain. And, uh, we get to where we believe the fire is at and it's on the, uh, in the bathroom on the backside of the house on the second floor. And I remember him telling me that like, we got to get through the door and it's, it's like, it's spongy. Like I can't, I'm keep getting resistance. So, you know, I don't know anything different. I'm like, okay, like. I'm, I'm just a big bowl of China coffee at this point. <laughs> just got done playing high school football, like move out of the way. I'll take care of this. And I remember like going up and, you know, I don't even think I had an Allegan or Axe and couldn't even tell you the difference between the two at the time. And, uh, you know, I just remember going up and like pushing my way through and getting the door. Somehow it came off the hinges and, you know, move it out of the way. And, uh, I remember turning back. And captain saying, you know, see if you can find a window. If you can, here's the ax, take the window. It's okay. Meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm progressing, you know, at the time I didn't realize I was in a bathroom, but I'm trying to get through this back room and I just happened to trip and fall and, you know, regain my composure, try to find a window, take the window and then, you know, I'm still loaded to ground. I, again, I don't know anything different. And while I'm loaded to ground, you know, I just happen to see the outline of, of legs. And, uh, you know, right away I resort back to, you know, my previous training yeah. and previous training is, you know, dummies. And here I am in a, in a smoke gold room, you know, again, very, you know, probably zero to no heat at all, but I see legs. And I'm like, you know, in my brain, I'm like, okay, the dummy, we'll get them. We'll take them out front, come back up, we'll regroup, you know, and going through the process and, um, you know, after I had stumbled across them and got back up and said, Hey, you know, there's a dummy in here. They're like, Hey, dummy, that's not a dummy. That's a <laughs> person. And, uh, you know, and that was, um, you know, it first first fatal fire i mean yeah. you know if it if the captain would have handed me the nozzle and said hey i'm gonna take the door then obviously you would have called across them you know and i again i don't know you know i i know this day that we did everything we could um in, in our liberty to protect and you know serve him but he was obviously gone way before we even got there yeah and uh so again it's like you know, I got less than two years in the service and here, here I'm thinking that I'm the culprit, you know, I just killed this guy. I didn't, I didn't get to him quick enough. You know, I'm thinking it's a dummy. Like, you know, it's just what, what you don't know is, you know, what you don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're 20 years old. You're, you're still a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. That's your first fatal fire and, and everyone remembers something like that, obviously. So what do you do with that? What do you, what do you, you leave the fire, you clean up, you, you get back to the firehouse. What do you do with it as a 20 year old? So uh, it was, I mean, we got back early the next morning hours, like, you know, after midnight and I really didn't know what to do. And at the time, you know. Okay. Ironically, we had this discussion yesterday about critical incident stress debrief. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, like how 
hell in some sense are just so vague and so poor. Like, unless you've got somebody that's trained in that stuff, like, you know, the fire chief, he didn't know any better. The, the, the community, they didn't know any better. They, they never experienced a fatal fire. They never experienced a, a fatality. And they did back in the, you know, the seventies or early eighties. And here it's early two thousands and it's like, like, what do we do? And, um, you know, uh, luckily, you know, there was in a, a different part of the county, um, is two decent sized cities, the city of Easton and the city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So they, they had experienced a little bit more. So they, they were able to reach out and say, Hey, like, you know, we, you know, we know that you guys just had this fatality. We're going to try to get a crew together and send them up there. And, um, you know, again, I'm like, keeps like, Hey, you're going to be here tonight. Like, if you've got to get off work early, you're going to be here seven o'clock or six thirty or whatever. We're going to sit around a room in a big circle. And, you know, I felt like I was at a campfire and boy scout. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. Again, I didn't, I didn't know anything different. So, uh, you know, we get there and obviously there's, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 of us. And there's some, some lady from Red Coles or wherever, I don't even know where she's from. Um, and she just starts rattling off a bunch of stuff and she's like, okay, it's your turn. Like you're trying to talk, like what happened? What'd you do? What'd you see? And I'm like, uh, this is what I saw. This is what I did. And you know, everybody went around the room and roll, you know, I wouldn't even say, you know, pat each other on the back, but they're like, you, know, you did everything you could or something more you could have done. Like, the, I don't want to say the atypical, um, answer, but it was kind of a mundane and watered down, if you will, you know, and here I'm, I'm like, okay, like, thanks lady. Thanks for coming. Like. What do I need to do now? How do I process all this? You're telling right. me that everything's good and I'm supposed to believe you. So. Yeah. And at that age, you, you mean, like you said, it's one of your first fires and, and you're, you're, you kind of follow along with, with what anybody else is going to say to this person. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm, you know, I'm the low man on the golden pool. Right. And there's, you know, guys, 15, 20, 25, 35 plus years. You know, it, 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 it wasn't that I was naive. It wasn't that I was scared to, to say anything. I think I was just more naive and not understanding the, the full impact of what it would do yeah. or how it would continue down the path that I got to. Yeah. At that age, you, you, it's one incident, right? It's, it's not, it's not it's not started to pile up and you hadn't seen anything else. And so, yeah, you're at this, at that age, you're thinking, okay, that's, that's one time. All right. Yeah. Back on. Yeah. So you're still, you're still working construction throughout all of this, still out there just hitting it hard at night. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So in 2007, you get, you get hit with a DUI. So yeah, January, January of 2007, um, actually had, Two of my buddies, uh, one of them being a classmate and then another one being from the neighboring high school, um, get ready to go to boot camp. Um, uh -huh. they were leaving first thing Saturday morning. 
So, uh, they were like, Hey, we're going to go out to the local bar Friday night, you know, one last big hurrah before we go. And we'd like to have everybody out there. So, you know, of course, again, it's a, it's a small community. Everybody knows each other. Yep. But there's, you know, 40 or 50 people out there. And, um, we weren't buying beer. We were buying pictures of beers both for individuals. Um, you know, it wasn't a, let me get around of 20 beers. Let me get around with 20 pictures. And that's, you know, how the night started. And, um, you know, I just remember, I think after four or five pictures of beer, um, you know, two of my other buddies were like, Hey, we're going to go home. And the way they, that the three of us all live in separate directions, so to speak, but we could drop the one all and then, or he would drive from the bar to his house. And my next buddy would drive from his house, his house, or my buddy's house to his house. And then I would drive, you know, the rest of the way home. And I'm like, you know, of course, again, being young and naive, Hey, you're good to go. Oh yeah. I've done this, you know, a thousand times. And, um, I'm invincible. Nothing's going to happen, you know? And, you know, sure enough, we leave the bar. My buddy drives to his place to drop him off. It's, you know, one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. And we leave his house. My next buddy drives to his place, dropped him off. And you're good to go. I said, yep. And away I go. And sure enough, not even a mile and a half from my house. I got pulled over by the local township cops. And, um, you know, and I, you know, again, joking, but it, you know, some, some things just stand out within your life. And I, and I remember Falcon, I remember the cop coming up to me and saying, you know, this is so-and-so we, we pulled you over for swerving. And I remember joking around with them again, being an asshole and naive, but, and I said, you know, I, I swerve on this road every day, hmm. you know, it's just a windy, windy country road. And, uh. That didn't go over very well. And that's when the cop was like, all right, like out of the truck and, you know, give me the field sobriety test. And unfortunately did not pass that test and, uh, you know, placed me in handcuffs and put me in the back of the car and, um, and the, you know, ended up going down to the, what we called the, uh, detention center. Um, you know, and they do your, you know, legal blood draw if you consent and they, you know, check all your vitals, make sure you're good and have you, you know, blowing a breathalyzer and everything. And I don't remember exactly where I, what I blew, but I think I was in a ballpark of, uh, 0.16. Okay. And, uh, you know, that, and I remember fortunately, uh, one of the guys I've gone to high school with his aunt picking up her boyfriend at the detention center as I was coming in. And again, I, I, when I, when I tell you how about how such a small community we lived in, I mean, that, that just goes to show you how small it was. Right. And, uh, she's there picking her boyfriend up and she's like, when I drop him off, I'll come back and pick you up. And I waited <laughs> my, you know, two, three hours and she came right. back, picked me up and brought me home. And I had a lot of explaining to do that morning. <laughs> yeah. I think though you, but you, you did say when we talked before that it was probably what you needed. Yes. Oh yeah. Big time. 
What do you mean by that? So, I mean, looking back, if if I would have continued down the path I was going, you know, drinking a a 30 pack of Miller, you know, between two nights or drinking three quarters of a 30 pack of Miller in a night and, you know, doing the, the stupid stuff of drinking and driving. Um, he was not to say I would have either gotten in a crash myself or killed somebody else. Um, and I, that was to me, that was the wake up call that I needed because I had an, you know, again, I was never diagnosed, but that was an addiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all I knew at the time was construction and drinking. Right. Um, and that was. That, like I said, that was, that was what I needed. And in a way, I think, you know, I'm not a super religious person, but I think that was God looking out for me. And because what, what are the consequences for you though? Is there any consequence from the job, from the department for anything? So, so, uh, I ended up losing my license for 60 days and I had to go through what they call an ARD program. Um, and the consequences really weren't there because again, at this point I was working construction with the assistant chief that lived right behind me. Um, you, you know, he also worked construction. So my consequences were, Hey, I'm going to pick you up at 6am. You better be out there by 6am or not coming to work. Um, and you know. Basically the consequences were, were, I didn't have a license for 60 days. Right. I couldn't drive, but Hey, I, I want to go here. I need to go here. Buddy comes and picks me up. We go out and do our thing. Or, you know, I got a free ride to work for 60 days until I get my license back. Hmm. You know, it, it, there was consequences, but there wasn't consequences. You know, everybody in the firehouse, they still did what they did. Continue to drink every Monday night after, after draining and, um, you know, it, it wasn't, there was consequences from the state and not consequences on my part. So. And you do construction until what year? Uh, so 2008 was when, yeah, so I, I ended up leaving that construction company and ended up getting a job in, as a heavy equipment operator in New Jersey. And 2008 was when the, the first, you want to call it mini recession hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember getting laid off. And at that time was, uh, you know, here I am trying to, you know, regain my life a little bit, trying to, you know, maybe quit the drinking or slow down considerably on the drinking side of things. You know, I just got faced with a, you know, a DUI year previous and yeah, like something's got to give. So I'm trying to, you know, clean my act up a little bit. I, I was never in trouble with the cops, never did drugs. Um, you know, if you call alcohol a drug, then I did alcohol. But, um, you know, 2008 December-ish of 2008, um, you know, I'm working in New Jersey and, uh, talking to a, one of our dump truck drivers and he kind of pulled me aside and he's like, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And 
it, it kind of like caught me by surprise. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm going to work construction. I'm going to have this big fancy pickup truck. I'm going to have a house. Mm-hmm. I might decide to travel the country, go work for as a union heavy equipment operator, travel the country, see what it's like, you know, again, like I had no goals in life, but to pay, pay my monthly truck payment, hopefully buy a house someday or potentially feed a country. And, uh, he's like, no, that's not what I mean. He's like, you ever thought about getting onto the career side of things in the fire service? And I said, no, I mean, at this point, I'm probably maybe 360 pounds. I'd probably drop 15 pounds of alcohol weight. So I'm like, yeah, there ain't no way nobody's ever going to bake me or it's a, it's a shot, shot in the dark. Right. 2001 still lurking around. I mean, the military still hot and heavy overseas. I'll be honest. Like there's nothing that a fire department would do anything in their power to get me. Nothing that I have is going to be appealing. And, uh, he talked about that and he says, I got a buddy that works in Hoboken, Jersey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's like, I'd like to talk to him by all means, like, we'll get you, we'll get you set up and we talk to him. So I was like, okay, like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll consider it. Um, when again, we got laid off and Tom continued to uh, you know, apply to other construction companies in the area trying to find work. Um, but at that time I was like, I really need to do, start doing something with my life and, uh, started, I would say to kind of get back into a rhythm of walking every night, two, three miles every night after dinner, I'd walk. Um, and I was like, you know what? Like maybe he is right. Maybe, maybe there is potential for me to get out of the construction industry and make something of myself. And I think he was kind of the, uh, the individual that came in at the right time to be like, you've got a, uh, you've got humongous future ahead of yourself. If you get your shit together now, you can still make something of yourself. He's like, I see the potential looking back, you know, I'd love to find him and thank him. And I think it's, um, he would, he, he would look out for me and that's kind of where the, the, the career aspirations and the, uh, the drive to get on or, or become a career firefighter started back in you know, 2008, early 2009. And so you, you go to EMT school. Mm-hmm. And you end up moving to a bigger volunteer department, correct? Or was it, was it, or was York a paid department? So yeah, York, uh, the city of York is paid, uh, the county of York, there's some smaller paid departments, but, um, so 2009 leading into 2010, I'm still working construction, but I, my Jeez. wife and I at the time, well, actually I was dating a girl. We weren't even married yet, but we had decided that we were going to go to EMT school because I'm looking at different things, kind of started getting in the process with some fire departments. And I'm like, one of the big things is EMT. 
And I'm like, even if I stay here, I could be a benefit to the local community. I can go work on the ambulance part-time or maybe full-time because, you know, that 2008 to 2010 mark was not good for, obviously for the construction industry at the time with the recession and the economy. So I was like, what do I got to lose? So we went, uh, for five months straight, we went to EMT class, her and I graduated, did everything there and, um, she was going to college in the local area or local to where I was and, uh, was like basically giving me the ultimatum of, Hey, I'm going to move back to my area, which was just outside of York, Pennsylvania. She's like, we can continue the day or you can stay here and I'm moving back. So I was like, you know, I got really got nothing to lose. Like my, I'm a hundred percent on board of trying to become a career firefighter at this point. I'm working out every day, going to the gym, continuing my walks, passing the MT school and, uh, York being just outside of, or, you know, just in South central Pennsylvania, there's obviously a lot more opportunity. So I was like, all right, let's go. And ended up moving down there with her, uh, about halfway from like 2010. Uh, 2011, uh, moved down to, uh, just outside of York, Pennsylvania. And every now and then I commute back and forth, uh, back up to my hometown. We continue to run some volunteer calls if I could, or try to jump on the ambulance for experience. Or if I was going through a hiring process in Maryland or Virginia, like I would stay down with her that week and then maybe I'd go back up to Eastern Pennsylvania. So it was kind of a a lot of bouncing back and forth. Um, but again, it's just trying to, trying to get established and trying to move in the right direction to hopefully get hired somewhere. Cause I knew like at this point, this is what I wanted and nothing was going to stop me. So in New York, you, uh, you talk about 2008 and taking the physical for the, for this ambulance job, correct? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, we don't have to get it. You, you, you had a scare and, and it turns out you were okay. It was an environmental issue. But I think the big mm-hmm. thing that comes from that is the fact that be, because of your job situation, you end up getting married to get on her insurance. Correct. Correct. Yep. And so, and how does that progress for you? So we, we ended up getting married uh, a year earlier to get on the insurance. And then, like you said, luckily the, uh, the issue is just environmental scare. So I was able to get hired by the ambulance and sort of volunteering down in the York area with a, a much busier department. And they were doing probably five to 600 runs a year, uh, a lot more MBAs, a lot more entrapments, accidents, quite a few more fires. So I was getting more of a taste of, uh, volume of coal, so to speak. Right. And maybe a little bit more of the, the experience, if you will. And so at that point I'm working, I get hired by the ambulance. I'm working full time for the ambulance. My day's off, I'm volunteering. Um, and kind of fast forward, we end up having, uh, a daughter, um, and shoot, I have to look at my dad too. Uh, <laughs> I'm horrible with the 2000. 2012, my wife here told me, 
was here. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Um, so yeah, 2012, February, 2012, we had a, we had a daughter, uh, Maggie and, um, again, I'm, um, the workload and the aspect of working has not stopped. When I was working construction, I'd work 60, 70 hours a week. Here I am as a full-time EMT. Um, I end up getting a, a, a good uh, foundation under my foot or under my feet of taking more classes, more classes in the fire service with all the to us, um, and really, really going full steam ahead of trying to do what I could to build my, build my resume, but also trying mm -hmm. to get hired with somebody. And, uh, luckily I was able to get, uh, a part-time gig working, um, just outside the city of York for a very, very small combination apartment. And I was a part-time career firefighter for them. So I'm trying to balance full-time EMT, um, part-time career work, still running five, 600 calls a year with the volunteer department. And on top of it, I go and try to tackle my associate's degree. <laughs> Plus having a one-year-old or yeah. newborn at the house. You got everything going on. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and at the time it was obviously a lot on my plate, but I was destined to get hired anywhere that had an opening from Boston all the way out to Houston, Texas. Nothing was going to stop me. I was, I was destined to get hired somewhere. And you, you, you do, you end up getting hired. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, fortunately I, get, I ended up getting hired in Prince George's County, Maryland and 2013, um, and right before I get hired in 2013, uh, January, actually Thanksgiving of 2012, uh, I think that's kind of where the, the story starts to turn. Um, and in my relationship with my ex-wife really starts to go downhill. The, uh, the working a lot, never being around home, um, always being either at the volunteer firehouse or trying to work and make ends meet and just not that I didn't want to be home, but I, I had, I had a goal in mind of trying to get hired and I had a goal in mind of getting experience and how do you, how do you balance the work life and the personal life? And that was something I could not understand or fathom on how to do both. And our, our relationship went downhill very, very quickly. And, uh, we started talking about divorce right before Christmas and possible separation. And, uh, right after that, it, it, it came to a head and we were, we were separated about four months later, she moved out in April of 2012. And, um, it was not good from that aspect. And it really, really started to cause me a lot of stress and anxiety. And I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but leading up to getting hired in Prince George's County, it was, it was brutal. There, there'd be days I come home from work and just beat down, exhausted and just, would just cry. And because I got a, I got a one year old that I'm not getting to see the workload, the, 
the mundane of getting exposed to more and more of uh, life-altering calls, if you will, fatalities mm-hmm. and shootings and suicides and, I mean, just the gamut, the gamut of the real life experience that I had never really saw or seen in the years previous. And then, um, so luckily I, I met my now wife, uh, right before I got hired in Prince George's County in, uh, August of 2013. And she's sitting in the room next to me, but she's probably going to laugh at me when I say this, but she was in Dillard's, the rock. She, sorry. Um, but yeah, she, she, she came in and took care of my daughter was, was never asked, was never told that she had to do what she did. And she was, she was young. We're, we're nine years difference and here she is. And I mean, I'm just, I'm 29 years old. I've already been through a divorce. I had a DUI, like I'm trying to regain my life and trying to push forward going through a divorce, having to, having to pay child support, which was a whole nother ordeal. And she came in and like swept me off my feet, swept my daughter <laughs> off her feet and was I'm like literally the rock that I think I needed. And, uh, so yeah, it was, that was, uh, uh like I said, August, 2013 and, and I'll never forget October, 2013, we're in a grocery store. It was a Monday afternoon. Just her and I just happened to meet up at the grocery store, get some things and, uh, get a phone call from, um, the HR lady for Prince George's County. And she says, this is so-and-so, uh, we want to give you the offer starting Academy next Monday. Who's like, okay. Like I I've been going, going through multiple different processes. I, I had an idea that things were starting to look, uh, favorable. Um, things were starting to pan out and again, I was in multiple different hiring process and, and I remember breaking down in the, uh, in the grocery aisle and she's like, who's that? She's, she says, no, I mean, we've got a lot of things to do in the next week. We were planning on going to back up to my hometown for the weekend, uh, to, uh, a relative of mine, his wedding. I had to be in Prince Orleans County the next day to get fitted and take care of some, uh, paperwork and stuff. And like, I'm looking at five year process and I've gone from five to six year process from getting a DUI and weighing 380 pounds to getting married, having a child, getting a divorce to meeting this, this, this girl who was again, nine years older than me that 
could have said, yeah, fuck, I'm going to go hang out with my friends, but he stood beside me. And that's, yeah, October 21st, I believe it was, started Prince, yeah, Prince George's County, Maryland Fire Academy. In, in Prince George's, if, if people are familiar with it, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a busy department. Yeah, very, yeah, um, very busy department. Uh, I can't even remember back in 2013, how many calls the county was rolling, but it was probably in the ballpark of 150 to 180,000 calls a year. Um, and that might, that number might be a little high, roughly give or take 350 square miles borders deep or Washington, the district of Columbia on the, the east side and just just shy of a million population. I mean, it's, it's a very busy and fast paced department. Um, there were rumors that they, it was, or is, or has been the largest combination department across the country between a career and volunteer uh, side of things. And you come out of the academy and you get put on day work and day work has its own set of issues for in this whole, I don't know, in this story. What was your day work schedule? So day work for us was, uh, it was kind of broken up in two different aspects. We had seven or eight firehouses at the time that were, uh, seven to three, five days a week. And then a couple of the firehouses in the, the busier, uh, areas, if you will, would have what they call the late person and what people don't understand or realize about Prince George's County is we don't staff, or I shouldn't say we, but they don't staff apparatus. They staff firehouses. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, we, at the time at three o'clock or so our minimum staffing or max staffing from seven to three was six. So we'd have four on the engine and two on the ambulance. After 3 PM, our staff would drop down to four. So. At 301, if an ambulance call came out, the two firefighters would jump on the ambulance. And if a house fire came out at 303, there was two guys on the engine, the driver and the officer, and they were riding with two. Uh, hmm. So there was quite a few houses, especially on the northern side of the county, that were set up that way just to kind of balance out the, the staff from between the, some of the 24, seven career staff houses. And then you had some of the volunteer houses. I was assigned to West Lanham. 48. So we were relatively a, a pretty busy engine company, uh, especially for that area running parts of 495 and Baltimore, Washington expressway. And we had a, a humongous, uh, first dude on top of massive, massive apartment complexes. The command staff had chose that, that firehouse to be in what they call the late spot. And that started bringing a lot of stress on me too, working five days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, commuting basically two hours on a good day, one way back up to South central Pennsylvania or, or York. And, uh, and it, that probably was this, uh, another start, if you will, of yeah, look at my life as chapters as most people do, um, I get hired by the fire department. Things are going good where I want to be. 
we're in the academy and they give you your assignment and all of a sudden it's like, Hey, sorry about your luck. You live in Pennsylvania, but you're going to be put on day work. It's like, okay. Um, and I look at, I looked at that chapter as being probably the next start, if you will, of the stress and frustration of c- commuting. I mean, just the downright anger of mm-hmm. people driving on the road, but it, it's sort of taken a toll on my, like my, my now wife, Christy and I, you know, I, I can remember calling her on the, on the way home and looking at the map and it's like anywhere between two and four hours until I get home. I get home at eight o'clock at night, grab a shower, dinner, and yeah. right back up at three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was repetitive. Yeah. It's takes a lot. I was coming out of the academy for myself and it was, uh, it was day work as well. And it was six to six, four days a week. And then you had a, a rotating day off and, uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's some, there's definitely some good to it. I mean, as a rookie who had never experienced fire before, it was perfect for me because I got my hands on four days a week. Yeah. But you're also, it's a special kind of tired four days a week. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I, I can commiserate a little bit with the day work. I, I don't regret it, but I wish, no. uh, I, I, there's no good schedule to, let's be honest. We can, we can talk yeah. about schedules all we want, but there's no real good schedule because it's all call dependent. But there was some good to it, but there was a lot of negative to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. So you, you, West Lanham was where you landed as a rookie. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, you go to Capitol Heights, correct? Yep. Yeah. So did my, so in PG, we had what they call it the probationary, probationary period, uh, was give or take, you know, a year, between nine months and a year. I mm-hmm. did my, my probie book in a year and I was waiting for the transfer and spent 13 months at West Lanham. And, um, I had a couple of buddies that were, that were already working in Capitol Heights and they ended up having a spot on, uh, D shift. So Prince George's County runs a 24, 72 schedule and, uh, go on D shift. It's, I don't want to say it's the, the weaker shift of the, of the firehouse. They had some key players. I mean, I mean, just like every firehouse across the country, you got good guys mm. on one ship. You got maybe one that's not so good, but I was like, at this point, I don't care. Five has a good reputation as a firehouse. Um, most importantly, it's going to get me, uh, on shift work. And that's, that's really what I, what I was hoping for. Um, and. Like I said, 13 months later, I had the opportunity to, to go to D-Shift on Capitol Heights. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So let's talk about Black Friday. Okay. What happens that, that, in what year was Black Friday? So, um, 2017, I believe. 
Um, I was just looking at the pictures the other night and actually, it's actually coming up next week. And, uh, Nancy just talked about it on another podcast and he's going to yell at me for not getting the date. Um, but I believe 2017, so I'm working in Capitol Heights for a few years now, getting my feet wet, getting experience, a whole different, uh, clientele, uh, culture, just, I mean, just a different animal, if you will, nothing that I had ever seen, nothing I've ever been exposed to. People are familiar with Capitol Heights, literally you make a left out of the firehouse and you go four blocks and you're in Southeast DC. Right. Um, so we, we actually border Southeast DC and it, it, it's not a good area. It's not a great area. It's a great area to be a fireman. It's a great area to learn, but it's high crime rate. Um, a lot of drugs and shootings and stabbings and your fair share of fires and, um, that's sort of taken, I think a little bit of a toll on me a little bit getting going from a, a, a day work firehouse to running probably on average 10 to 15 runs a shift, um, being up at night and I'm still trying to balance the, the work life, the volunteer a little bit here and there. Um, 2014, I ended up getting hired as a adjunct constructor for the state fire academy in Pennsylvania. So I'm trying to get my feet wet there, trying to get established on the teaching side of things. And again, failing miserably at the, the balance of life and personal life or, uh, work life and personal life. And uh, my wife now, Christy, her and I were pattern issue. One thing I think that probably really did help was. The drinking has subsided every now and then I'd occasionally drink, but I wouldn't get hammered or if I did, like I was in a good, good spot or a good state of mind. I wasn't doing anything stupid, but the, the metal, uh, abuse between us both, I think at the time or the, you're never home, you know, you should be at home with your daughter. There's no. I'm taking time out of my day to watch and raise your daughter. That's not even mine. And, uh, just the rundown of you're always working, you're never home. And, and, and it, it's starting to continue and continue and continue. And it's, it's starting to build up. And, um, and again, the commute so long. So I was pretty religious about getting into the firehouse about five 30 in the morning. Like if I showed up at five 35, I was late on my standard. Mm -hmm. Our shift change was 7 a.m. But so, like I said, I was, I'd be up 10, 11 o'clock the night before, get up at 3 a.m., leave the house by 4, fly down to work, be in the firehouse by 5.30, run a bunch of cold all day, be up to 11 to 12 o'clock that night. And if we ran a couple of calls after midnight, like my sleep schedule was shit. Mm -hmm. I was trying to work out as much as I could if, if I wasn't tired or exhausted. Um, you know, again, balancing work and personal life and teaching and it was just a shit show. And, uh, so new year's old or new year, new year, excuse me, Thanksgiving rolls around and, uh, it's Thanksgiving Eve. We're, we're scheduled to work on Thanksgiving and we're at our house or our townhouse and it's myself and 
my wife now, Christy, and then my oldest daughter, Maggie. And I, to be honest with you, I don't even remember how the argument started, but at the time we were starting to see some things potentially happening with Maggie, maybe looking at the ADD route, possible autism, possible some other underlying medical conditions that was obviously gaining some stress on me as well. And again, I, 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 to this day, I still don't remember what the argument was about, but it was very, very heated between Christine and I, it, it did not end well. And to the point where Maggie's mom had to come and pick her up at like one o'clock in the morning, Thanksgiving day, Christy goes to bed. I go to bed and I wake up and it's like six o'clock or quarter of six. I'm supposed to be in a county at shift for shift change at seven. And by the grace of God, I still don't know how one, I didn't get pulled over two, I didn't crash my car and three, how I made it on time, but I pulled in the firehouse at like six fifty, and, uh, in it. At the time I, I'd worked with Mike for a while. He kind of knew me. I kind of knew him for the most part. We were still kind of building our crew out a little bit. We'd say if we had some individuals that wanted to be there and we had some individuals that just could kind of care less. So it was, it was here I am with three and a half years, four years on the department and I'm kind of being looked at as a senior fireman in the firehouse. So a lot of stress is being put on me. There's a lot of weight on me trying not to not only make myself look bad, but obviously my lieutenant and everybody else in the firehouse and our battalion, um, we're, like I said, I mean, I'm very grateful for my time in PG. I, I really gave me the foundation that I have more so today because I was able to learn and basically mature and grow up at such a young in my career, just because of the impact that the senior guys have put on us from division chief and battalion chiefs and so forth. And, um, so we, and it was, I, I always held my, my standards high and it goes back to the, the high school football and the, the compassion and the pride. I was one of the firehouse clean. I wanted the, the wagon clean. And so I walk into the firehouse, of course, I'm pissed off. It's two minutes to seven. I'm usually there by five 30 and kind of going through my routine and, you know, rush around and Mike's like, all right, it could be your thing. So I go out and start checking off the wagon, wash it up. And next thing, like we were up and down the road all day long. And we had, we had thought about trying to have couple of closer companies in a battalion, uh, over for Thanksgiving dinner, kind of starting a new tradition. And, um, so like I said, I think, I think we ended up eating at like four o'clock in the afternoon and dinner got interrupted at least a half dozen times. Like, it, like we probably ran, I don't know, probably in the ballpark of at least 15 runs by 6 PM. Like we were just up and down the road. So finally after dinner, we kind of, everything kind of subsided a little bit and, uh, we got put on a, an apartment fire down in the next, uh, uh, area down from us and ends up being a bullshit call. 
So we rack up from that. We got put on a, a first new apartment fire right down the street from our firehouse. So we run that one. That ends up being, like, I think, a dumpster or, or something. So we clear clear that, get back to the firehouse. And by this time, it's like 10, 11 o'clock. Like, Ooh. starting to wind down. I'm still kind of on my... I'll go to bed around midnight because that's when everybody starts to really, that's when the area kind of dies down a little bit. And, uh, like I said, we've been up and down the road all day. I probably had maybe three hours of sleep. And, uh, so I go to bed and, um, we, so the way our bunker is, and, and, and I know Mike's talked about that particular firehouse, which is very, very unique and it does not have a day room which we always found, I guess, in the lack of better terms, kind of a neat experience, just the way the firehouse is designed. But so with that being said, the bunker is tiny. And we have, uh, at this point, we have, we have six people on the floor in the firehouse. We had an ambulance, the basic ambulance, uh, the three-man engine company, and then we had what we called the rehab, which was, county-wide that would go on any working fire incident or working incident across the county or mutual aid and for wherever. And that particular night, I was driving a wagon. We had another guy that was on a shift that was, he had, uh, he actually came in that night and was going to just ride as a four, which really wasn't uncommon, but it really wasn't a, it really wasn't a thing, but he traveled through and he's like, screw it, like, I'm just going to ride. So he does, and so there's five of us in this, in the men's bunk room, and then one female in the female bunk room. So, uh, I guess it was probably about two o'clock or so. We're obviously all asleep at this point. And, um, where my bunk was, was, a the, the lights that would come on and the way that the alerting system was set up was if it popped up red, it was for the, for the engine. And if it was blue for the ambulance, I think it was orange and white for the rehab. So you didn't have to get out of bed. So I remember the lights kind of coming on for a short stint. And I remember just rolling back over. And next thing I know, I mean, and I shouldn't say next thing I know, but I didn't wake up. Like I never saw the lights. I'm just, I'm, I'm exalted at this point. And, uh, by, by that time, every, all the lights had gone out, the, the actual light in the bunk room had gone out. And I remember hearing the engine start up. I'm like, man, that's odd. Like the lights are on, like, I don't know what's going on. And I think one of the guys, I don't remember if it was Lieutenant Nasty or not, but he comes running in and he's like, Hey, let's go. We got a, we got a house fire or something like that. And, uh. So I go stumbling out, trying to get half dressed and get all my bearing straight as I'm walking out to the engine and he gives me the rundown. He's like, so it's on such and such street or thing before it's entrapment. Um, I'm like, okay, like I'm going through a fog at this point. I've been up for X amount of hour. Like we'll get there when we get there. And so we go down the road and I remember meeting the second due engine at the intersection and I'm like, fuck, like I'm really behind the game. We're really behind the eight ball because we have, should have, should have smoked them in there. Like there was no, no denying we should have had been on the scene for a good two minutes by ourselves. And I remember meeting him at the intersection 
And of course the, you know, battalion chiefs coming from the opposite direction and, uh, like the, the domino effect of when we look at, uh, a lot of duties or NIOSH incidents or, uh, near misses, this should have been all three of them in this particular incident. So we turn the block and he gives me a layout and he's like, Hey, hydrants on your side, we'll lay out from here. We'll go up, give a size up and do everything he has to do. So as soon as I pull up, I get, jump out, get the layout out. The second engine's right behind me and they're dropping their guys all. Well, for some reason, the guys on the second engine decided to jump on our tailboard and I didn't realize it at the time. So we pull up, the house is probably two, 300 feet down. And this house is, I mean, yeah, it's a flip foyer. Um, and I mean, there's fire shown on the alpha side. Uh, I never saw any fire on the Charlie side, but they said there was fire basically everywhere. So to top it all off, to add another dominant to the, to the effect, we're riding in a early nineties reserve, um, that has been known to have issues and have problems and, you know, just, uh, not a, uh, a great reserve by any tickets and we pull up and trying to get a, a balance of water supply and lines are coming off left and right. This guy's pulling this line. The next thing I know, I got like four hand lines off and I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And I'm thinking I'm at like deja vu. Meanwhile, the first thing truck company shows up and they're doing their thing. And it's just, I mean, total chaos. And. Next thing I know, I hear, uh, engine 805 officer to command saying that they've had a victim, um, and they were bringing them out, bringing, bringing the victim out to Charlie's side and like in the same, same breath you hear, uh, or you see a couple guys kind of come tumbling out the front steps, which were two of the guys off of, uh, North 26 and Long story short, they end up getting burned and get taken to the hospital. And next thing I know, I'm trying to like kind of pull them out of the front entrance and get them out of the way so they can, they can be taken care of. Guy from 33 from Hitland coming around the Charlie Delta side with the victim on his hands. And I'll never forget when it's this real fragile old lady. He basically looked at me and we lock eyes and he just hands me her. And says the ambulance is down there. Can you can you take take her for me? And I said absolutely. Like I got a lot of shit going on. I've got multiple lines inside. It was a a, a plate street, one way access. We couldn't get companies in from the other side. It was just domino after domino. And I got two firemen burned up in the front yard. Fire blowing out the alpha side. And victim coming around. And I remember meeting the ambulance. And luckily they had the stretcher out and I just remember sitting the, the lady on the, uh, the stretcher and like walking back up to the engine thinking like, what in the fuck am, like, what is going on here? And a little while later, fire goes out and you can see the disgust and, in all of our, our faces. Um, it was definitely not out the highest performance as a, as a crew by any means. Um, it, it was, 
again, Mike and I, I think held each other to such a high standard and we both failed each other and we started taking an outing out on each other on the scene in front of everybody. And it really, I know Mike talks about a lot, but it really, I don't want to throw him under the bus, but I know it really paid his future for what he is and who he is today. And I, I know it has done the same to me because that, that particular fire was a, was a turning point of, I think both of our careers and both of us more so him understanding more of the mental aspect and the personal balance of life, something that he grasped very quickly, I still struggled with. And I remember getting relieved on the scene by a shift and uh, we had a, it was a basically a, a county car. It was a Chevy Lumina. So there was five of us piled in the Chevy Lumina with gear, smell like ass and driving back to the firehouse. And it was just, it was probably seven thirty in the morning and we're all pissed off at each other. Just, yeah. I mean, just bad. And, uh, you know, I remember calling Christy on the way home and just, I, I don't remember if it was a vent or a, a cry session or both or just like, I'm done. Like it, it was a lot, it was definitely a lot. I mean, again, that balance of trying to understand everything here I am. And on the flip side of outside looking in, so to speak, I, I am on the outside and here I got two guys burned up. And mm-hmm. to this day, I don't know if it was my actions or with other actions or something happening inside. Like it, it was just a cumulative events of hopefully that never happened again. And we learned from it. And so after that, I, I started seeking, uh, some guidance, if you will, with the local psychologist or psychiatrist, I can't even remember in the, in the area in uh, PA and it was, again, it was it just putting a bandaid on, putting a bandaid on, uh, going through this tremendous impactful incident of the multiple things that had, had gone bad and multiple, not multiple victims, but two firemen getting burned and victim getting burned and whatnot. And the cumulative events of being in the ghetto, the, uh, the ghetto farm. I mean, a ghetto farm. I mean, I'll say it how the how, how it was. I mean, it it was not a good area, and I loved I loved every minute of it. But mentally and personally, they could have beat him on me, and I had no idea. Could not could not fathom that. So you. Not only do you, you move on from PG, but, but how do you start to, to, to recover from that fire itself? So I think, um, you know, seeking a, seeking a counselor was what I thought a step in the right direction. Again, I, I really didn't know what I know now. It was, it was not where I needed to be. And it was, again, it was putting a bandaid on a wound that just kept getting bigger and bigger, and bigger. Um, we talked about it amongst ourselves as a shift. I'd reached out to some guys that I knew within the county and 
in DC and other areas and got their, got their side of things. And, um, and it, it's tough because sometimes you try to look for advice for, for seek advice from other firemen, but it's like, they have no idea what you just went through. You can only explain it to them within so much detail and they're like, yeah, I have no idea. So I, I really never was able to, I guess, fully heal from it or un, like fully understand it to, to step in the right direction. Um, I just knew at that point that in my mind, I still loved going to work. I still enjoyed where I work, um, especially in Capitol Heights, but I knew that looking back, I'd always wanted to be a big city farmer mm-hmm. and with the way things PG or the way things were going in PG, I knew that I really wasn't sure if I wanted to be there anymore as a fireman. And, uh, going up through the ranks, you had to become a paramedic and in order to promote to the next level, you had to be a paramedic. And it was something I really didn't have a whole lot of interest in. I just wanted to do it because I wanted to promote on the, you know, suppression side. Uh, so with that being said, I, and a lot of people didn't know it at the time, but some guys in the firehouse did, but I was continuing the process with the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'd gone through several, several other processes and actually the Charlotte was the second place I'd ever tested, uh, ironically back in 2007, March of 2007. And at the time I had the DUI and they basically said, sorry about your luck. Uh, you have a DUI and you're driving record. <laughs> We're not even going to entertain anything. So, you know, 2017 leading into 2018, oh, again, work's going great. I love going to work because I get to do what I enjoy, being a fireman. I want to fire, going to the hot, the, the, uh, low frequency, high priority calls of the shootings and the stabbings and the police chases and life's good, but life wasn't good at home and Again, I'm trying to understand that balance of it's easy for, for me at the time to talk to talk, but I wasn't walking the wall. And that right. was, especially with the, the teaching and the instructing, instructing side of things, it was something that I was trying to hold myself to such a high standard that I put work and work life and my reputation at such a high standard and I just, I couldn't figure out the balance. How do you f- figure out the balance? Cause here you are, you're still a firefighter. Yeah. I, I really didn't. I put work above everything else. And at the time, my wife, Christy and I were, it, it was rough. Next thing you know, I'm living, we're, we're not even married. We're just dating at the time, but we're separating if you will and i'm living at a buddy of mine's house when he's at work and when he's not at work i'm living at another buddy's house when he's at work and i'm flipping flip-flopping between two buddy of mine or two close friends of mine 
between your house and, and that goes on for a month, two months. And finally, I was like, enough's enough. Like, um, something's got to give. We have to figure this, this life, this personal life and this relationship between you and I out. At this time, we're, we had had a child, uh, my youngest, and I, I knew I was not ready to be out of her life just as much as I was not ready to be out of my oldest daughter's life. Yeah, of course. But I was, yeah, no, I wasn't ready to pay more child support and go through all that drama, or not drama, but headaches and hardships again. And I was like, something's got to give. Like, I don't know what it is, but got to give. So what gives? Um, yeah, I, I think the opportunity to start fresh and, uh, October of 2018 is when I got the, the notification that I was going to be in the, uh, Charlotte fire department recruit class and went away. And that was, I think the, the light at the end of the tunnel, I mean. That was, that was a rough week for me to begin with. That was, and I know we talked about it earlier, but that was the week previous was when Brad Clark passed away. When that, that three year time frame between 2015 and 2018 on, on top of everything else was, was a very tough year from the DC Metro, South Central Pennsylvania fire departments. We had a lot of duty in PG. Um, we had a, a fireman that got diagnosed with cancer and he died. We had a double line of duty in, uh, York, Pennsylvania. We had a lot of duty in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We had, you know, a lot of duty in Howard County and then Brad Clark, you know, the seven of the, the guys I just talked about, I mean, I'd either work with them, volunteered with them, taught with them, um, knew them new guys that knew one, it was, again, it was getting that, 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 uh, email was the closure of it. To me, I guess it was like, I, I can put all this to the side. I'm starting fresh and getting that email from the city of Charlotte, like here I am, like peace out DC metro area. You, you've given me a tremendous amount, but you've also given me a tremendous amount of anxiety and stress and just a lot of stuff to deal with that I, I don't know how to process. And I remember I'm at, at the Harrisburg Area Community College of Pennsylvania and I'm uh, talking to a friend of mine and just happened to pull my phone out and there was an email and I remember calling Christy and said, Let's go. We're moving to Charlotte. And that was the next chapter, if you will, of closing that five year span of PG and just hopefully pushing it to the side and never remembering and never understanding. You know, I wouldn't say never remembering, but understanding to a degree the impact that it had, but never understanding the full capacity of the impact that it had. You say you push it to the side, but do you ever meet it head on and, and, and just fucking break it down and, and deal with it in some manner? 
No, I didn't because I really didn't know how to. I just, the mantra, even five years ago, was in the fire service, just push it to the side or don't talk like that. Or I'm at a time in my career that I'm being looked at as a role model, as a mentor, mm-hmm. teaching a younger, younger generation. I'm teaching well over a thousand hours a year through the Pennsylvania State Fire Academy. Right. I'm teaching at Firehouse Expo in Nashville. I'm teaching in Virginia and other places on the East Coast. And it's like, how can I say that I have all this baggage, if you will, when I'm being looked at by my subordinates or my coworkers or other people as being somebody that they hot, that they hold to such a high standard. I can't break down now. Right. And that, that was very tough because mental health wasn't even being talked about. It was even then it was the two biggest things that killed firemen was, was cancer and heart disease. Mental right. health wasn't even talked about. Wasn't even, it wasn't even on the radar. Um, so again, it was like, oh, you got mental health problems? Fuck it up. And it just wasn't, it wasn't even fathom in 2018. I think what I was going to go into is, so you, you, you decided to kind of, you put DC behind you in a way, physically, at least it stays with you. You come to Charlotte, you go through an academy, you've been a firefighter in Charlotte for going five plus years right now. Mm-hmm. What are you doing differently in Charlotte than, than you did previously? To be honest with you, nothing. I mean, okay. it was, you know, the, the workload was there. Um, you know, obviously I was still paying child support. Mm-hmm. The, the work-life balance still hadn't figured it out. I'm probably working twice as much, but the nice thing about it was the family atmosphere. The fact that I my, my commute was 30 minutes into the city, mm-hmm. 30, 30 minutes to my, my part-time job and the, the family, the culture of inviting families into your, into your firehouses and making it a point that it's. Yeah, we have rough areas in Charlotte, but it's not the same. So I felt a little more comfortable bringing my wife and my daughter into some of the areas that I worked in. I'm trying to balance that a little bit more and trying to balance, again, the work life, the personal life, and still not really grasping the idea. Because at this point, to me, I'm on basically uneducated. I, I don't know what that balance looks like. People talk about it all the time. And it's you could draw a picture up on a whiteboard and say this is what it should look like, but until I can physically understand it or grasp the concept, like I'm still just day by day. Right? Just trying to make ends meet, go through the motions. If I'm home, I'm home. If I'm not, you know, I'll see you in a couple of days. Do you think that now is that time to, to figure out a way to, to blunt the effect of some of this? Again, yeah, not really because I guess I was trying to be naive, not trying, but I, I was naive. But my mind, I left a, a very well-respected department across the country 
with a good reputation. And here I am trying to establish myself and build my foundation with the city of Charlotte, knowing that I had such a, you know, knowing that I had a good reputation from where I left, I wanted to carry that over into Charlotte and start off under the radar, but start off knowing the time chief was coming down the road. He knew that this guy's good. He's good at what he does. He, you know, he's a good player. He walked the walk. He talked the talk, but he can get shit done. And it just never, it never really registered. I was, I sit here now looking back and I was all for myself because I go from one department to the next and I just want to carry that good reputation about myself. But now it's something I preached about a lot, especially to on the teaching side of things was I was very hard on some of the, the students that I had, because one, I wanted them to be good at what they did, volunteer career. It didn't matter. I wanted them to be professionals. I wanted them to be respected, um, and hardworking and aggressive and all these other, you know, words that we throw out nowadays, but more importantly, I wanted my daughters, both Maggie and Bria to have a, a well-respected name. If I would ever happen to die. Or, you know, eventually died. I wanted that tradition to carry on through them. And that's, that's what I saw. If I were to die tomorrow, I wanted them to, I wanted somebody to come up to them and tell them your dad was the hell of a fireman. And again, that balance, it, it's tough because part of me still wants to be known as a good fireman, good firefighter, or someday a good officer, or a good chief. But uh, I, I think that now we'll get to the next part of the story, but I think now I'm, I've given, I've been given the opportunity to understand that balance and that, that personal and work life. And we can talk about that next. Yeah, I was going to, so you, you mentioned the, the next part of the story. So I think this is kind of where I fly blind a little bit because the, the notes, I don't have that part because our conversation got cut off a little bit. So, um. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, let, let's get into it. So, like I said, trying to understand that balance of life and, and work life, building that reputation, just trying to be a good fireman, so to speak. And obviously, I still had all the problems that I had carried with me from my days in KG, my the DC metro area, days in South Central Pennsylvania, um, and. I thought moving eight hours away, it was a start, it was a fresh start and I wouldn't be faced with stuff. And we're a year or two in living in North Carolina, big COVID scare comes out. And I remember, uh, summer 2020 coming down with, with what I thought I had COVID or whatever. And silly me trying to, trying to do something better than everybody else or trying to get myself more respected, I decided I'm going to go get my bachelor's. I've already got a full plate. I'm already working in the city. I'm working part-time. I'll add a bachelor's degree to it. And again, I, I don't realize and understand the full aspect of the, the mental, uh, things that I've been dealt with for the last 36 years of my life. Right. 
And so of course that, that brings that correlates to the home life and the home life's not good. Christy and I, we have our verbal arguments and we have some arguments that ended up getting not physical, but I mean, plates thrown and, and pots thrown and food thrown across the kitchen and stuff that I was, uh, I saw the young child and my parents went through their divorce and I'm like, here it is. Like, I don't know what to do, but 30 plus years later, I'm going right through the same thing that my mom and dad went through. Mm-hmm. We're talking about divorce. She's talking about moving it back to Pennsylvania. Like my world is crumbling around me and I, I just, I don't know what to do. And at the time I'd, I'd gone through quite a last, you know, the, my late twenties to my you know, mid thirties, um, it seasonal depression, wintertime blues or whatever you call it. And, um, so wintertime rolls around, I get, and get depressed. The, the leaves are off the trees, the sun's not out, just downright, just miserable. And so that, that adds fuel in the fire. And it's just, I'm just a ticking time bomb for a bigger event. And so finally, I started talking to some guys around, around the firehouse and stuff. And they're like, you know, so this is like February of 2021 or late winter, early, early spring of 2021. We're still going through COVID crazy and stuff. So obviously things are crazy. Um, but I'm, again, I'm working, getting my degree, my bachelor's degree, full plate on the table and worrying about finances and worrying about this and worrying about that. And, pushing my family to the side and some of the guys were like, man, you are exhausted. I'm working in a, a busy firehouse in downtown Charlotte at the time. Well, prior to COVID they were running, we had an engine and a ladder out of that firehouse and they were doing close to 10,000 runs between both companies and COVID took a, took a big hit to us because of the, the daytime population. Anyway, they were like. We're sleeping every night. Something's not right. You should go get your testosterone checked and this and that. And I'm like, okay, like I've never followed up with testosterone. I'm 37 years old, 38 years old. Like, okay. I talked to Christine. She's like, just go get it checked and see what it is. I said, okay. So I go to the family doctor they, they test it and they're like, call me back in like a week or two. And they're like, you're in with the normal limits. Everything's looking good. Uh. Have you ever thought about doing a sleep fight? I'm like, no, I haven't thought about it, but you recommend it. So let's get into it. I'm sleeping at night, even in the firehouse, but I'd wake up the next day, just downright exhausted. And I can't figure out why. And again, I'm, I'm oblivious. I have no idea why. And I go to the, go to the sleep doctor and, um, come back and do the, the home test or the home 24 hour test where they give you the monitor and stuff and do a follow up a week later. And Christy's actually out of town. And I remember calling her and saying, you know, I just talked to the, called to the doctor, um, and, and to this day, I don't remember what I, what kind of episodes I was having in an hour, but they were like, you're kind of on the borderline. We can recommend it or we can't. Well, I went back and forth and said, doc, I said, does the insurance company, you know, take care of it? And they're like, yeah, I said, 
screw. I said, fuck it. Let's just get it. But we'll leave the doctor's for the, the doctor's office with a fancy fleet battery machine, just like majority, probably the fire service dealers nowadays. And uh, they gave me their instructions and the rundown and told me how to operate it, do all that stuff. And so I'm at home all by myself. And I get to like the first two nights and I'm struggling with this thing. So Christy comes back and a couple of weeks go by and I'm still not just getting the relief that I feel like I should. And I feel like I'm getting more and more anxious at nighttime. I'm struggling trying to figure the sleep out in machine out. Like, I feel like I should be getting better results and people are telling me just to, you know, stay the course, going to take a couple of weeks. And so I'm going through it. And, um, I ended up, uh, working part-time over the weekend and, uh, had an incident with one of our personnel that really stressed me out. And I ended up being there for, I think. 72 hours straight. Um, and I remember it was a Monday night. I remember calling Christy on the way home saying, Hey, I'm just going to stop by the liquor store and I'll be home in a little bit. And I got a bottle of Jameson and again, I don't, I don't, I don't know sizes, but the biggest one that Jameson makes, I got it. And got a, a liter or two of, uh, Coke zero and came home, pulled myself a drink. Yeah, that was probably around six thirty, seven o'clock and kept pouring and pouring and pouring. And the next morning I woke up and she was pipped and, um, I didn't know why. And uh, apparently I, to this day, I, I, I still don't, I don't recall the events, but she said I, I swung at her. That was tough because again, I'm trying to balance everything in life. She's getting ready to walk back out the door with our daughter back to Pennsylvania, talking about divorce. Like this is it. Like we're done. We, we've reconciled how many times we're done. Gives me the, we'll hear from my lawyer. We'll talk about child support. Um, and like my world crumbling now and I'm just, I'm spinning out of control and just don't know where to turn, where to go. And now I remember I was supposed to work again that night and this was the next day and I remember calling out safety. Uh, the way our schedule in Charlotte is we actually get a, a it's a weird setup. Um, but we have a four day block that we have, uh, in a, in a 10 day cycle, we have a four day block of just, uh, 96 hours old. And what it happened to fall in that 96 hour time frame, how I was all. And the next thing I know, she's going back up to Pennsylvania and I'm trying to talk to her, trying to communicate with her. And she, she's not answering me and she's threatening me. And I mean, she has every right to, I got drunk, blacked out, tried to swing on her physically abuse her and physically and mentally abuse her. And, um, it, it did not put me in a good place at that point. So that, that morning she's packing her stuff up, she's out of here. And I remember just laying around the house, 
obviously depressed of what was going on and, and everything and how I was going to make ends meet. How, when was I going to get to see my daughter? I, I, I knew that this was it. I knew that, um, given the circumstances that I was, we were probably getting divorced and I'd be, I'd have my second divorce in about seven years. And so I remember, I remember trying to go to sleep early that night and I just couldn't sleep. Of course, you have all these things running through my head and, and of course, with everything that's transpiring, I'm thinking about how I can take myself out of the equation yeah. and meaning committed suicide. And And I'm struggling with this, the sleep apnea machine. Um, but I didn't realize that at the time, but that was giving me so much anxiety. And I just, I just figured that the easiest route would be to take the, the breathing tube and just wrap it around my neck. Hmm. And, uh. Because again, I, I, I knew that our relationship was over. Um, and that to me was the, the easiest way out was trying to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. I hated the fucking sleep that machine. It wasn't doing anything for me. It wasn't giving me the sleep I needed. I had just ruined my, my second marriage and the easiest way for me was just to take myself out of the equation and yeah. Every, everything that I, I had lived for was gone. Yeah. The one I thought I would be with the rest of my life was moving back to Pennsylvania and there was no boat in sight. I was going to have to figure out how to see both my daughters in Pennsylvania and trying to work and, and juggle life and, uh, to me, that, that was the easiest way was just taking that core for the, uh, the breathing tube, if you will, and just letting her come find me. And it was, again, by the grace of God, I, I, I still don't know how I, it luckily it didn't end up that way. And, um, somehow, some way I was able to go to sleep very early the next morning and be able to get some sleep and I was scheduled to work again that night. And I remember not eating that day and just kind of going through the motions of maybe if I don't eat, I'll just die laying on the couch. And, or if I, if like, I just had all these faults and all these, these things that were just trying to push me down to end my life. And. Um, I just, I, I couldn't get in contact with her to talk about anything or reconcile anything. And I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go to work. Like maybe that'll get my mind off things. I'll just go to work somewhere. I do enjoy being. And yeah, I remember getting into the firehouse and our schedule was a little different and 
shift change, not really shift change, but I was scheduled to be in there, I think for six 30 that night or six o'clock that night. And, um, I remember sitting down in, in the office and a good friend of mine who I was working with that night came in and you just looked at me and he's like, man, you like, you look like a pile of shit. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I gave him the, the courtesy of the go fuck yourself. And <laughs> we talked a little bit and he, he's like, finally, he, he pulled his, uh, joking around hat off and was like, all right, like what the fuck's going on? He's like, is it Christy? And I said, yeah. And, uh, I unloaded, I started crying and I said, you know, she told me that I got blacked out drunk last night and I tried to swing on her and she's taking Bria and moving back to Pennsylvania and we're going through divorce. Like, like I, I tried wrapping the, uh, breeding thing from the, the bypass for fleet that machine around my neck last night. And he was like, what the fuck? And he was, he, he's a, he's a big union guy and, um, North Carolina is, is a right to work state. So obviously we don't, we don't have bargaining contracts and long story short, he has been very, really affluent in the union and in and around the Charlotte metro area. And he looked at me and he says, and he, he knew where I came from and, and my support for from the union and whatnot, he says, we have a you know, facility and I'll never forget the words that came, came out of my mouth next. And I said, I know how soon can I be there? Hmm. And I knew to a degree at that point that if he saw sitting there talking to him, that I had one, I had to give up. And two, I almost felt like I was caught in a way. Like I had so much baggage and so much shit going on that was pent up. That was the term carrying your luggage around. I was carrying it around for eight years, right? Not more and never realized it until that day. And, uh. He told me, he said, if a call comes out and you get on the fire truck, I'm going to beat your fucking ass. He's like, that you're sitting right here. And he's like, in fact, he's like, go lay down. He's like, I, I'm going to start working on the process to get you to the center of excellence in Maryland. And I said, we call him Dick for, for short, but I said, Dick, I'm not going back to fucking Maryland. But I just left that fucking place and I'm not going back. And he's like, well, you don't have any other option. He's like, we can send, we can try to send you somewhere else. He's like, you need help. You realize you need help. You said that you needed mm -hmm. help, but you, that's your only option. So he started working on it from his end. And next morning he, he pulls me aside and he, he, uh, he got the ball rolling throughout the night and I remember waking up the next morning I was scheduled to work in a part-time place. And he said, you'll be getting a phone call from the battalion chief in Charlotte. that's over uh, peer support. I said, okay. So I, I kept to myself most of the morning. I really didn't do much. I was just so many mixed emotions. 
And I remember standing in the back parking lot and the battalion chief calling me and I'll, I'll never forget this. He was, he's a very big religious man. And I remember using every swear word I could think of on the phone with him because his intentions or the, the city's intentions were to have me go through the peer support through the local, uh, hospitals down here. And I said, chief, I said, I'm done and sick and fucking tired of putting a goddamn bayonet on this. I said, I need help. Dang. He's like, okay. Um, I bet that that's what you need and that's what you want. We'll start the paperwork. And, uh, within an hour later, he called me back and he's like, all right. He's like, the paperwork started. He's like, I emailed you everything. It's up to you to start on your end. Some of the paperwork. And, uh, I remember at that point getting on the phone and getting hold of a, a close friend of mine that went through Charlotte's academy with me, who was also one of our chiefs and where we were part-time and I knew I could confide in him. I knew I could tell him what was going on and I told him flat out, I said, Hey, I said, I need you to do me a favor. I said, I need you to start taking care of everything where we left part time together. And, uh, he's like, like, why? Like what's going on? And I told him that I said, I've been having some issues. He's like, okay. Like everybody has issues. I said, no, I said, like, I thought about killing myself. The other night and, uh, And he's like, Christy aware of this? And I said, no, she, she doesn't know. She's in Pennsylvania. We're talking about getting divorced and going through all this other stuff. And I said, Bree's up there and I don't know when I'm going to see my daughter again. And he's like, all right, don't worry about anything. I'll take care of everything here and, uh, we'll get everything you needed or need. From here, we'll get the ball rolling from our part-time place and we work together in the city. And, uh, at that point I called my battalion chief in the city and him and I were pretty close. And I said the same thing as the chief, I said, I'm going away. And then he got up his like, for what? And I, I told him, he's like, all right. I said, you and the, the other battalion chief over to peer support went to uh, city employees that know about this besides my other buddy, I said, will you do me a favor? And I said, get a hold of Chrissy and let her know. And, uh, Christy and, and my battalion chief at the time, they had a, a, I would say a positive, uh, cordial relationship with the year previous with me going again, the COVID phase, uh, mm -hmm. I had came down with some things, trouble breathing the whole nine yards. And again, I don't know if to this day, if it was just anxiety or what, but Christy was at the beach and I would, I ended up getting rushed to the hospital and my chief found out about it and he was ready to drive three hours and pick her up from the beach and bring her back lights and sirens and his battalion chief buggy. But that, that was a relationship that we have 
and it was a relationship that him taking care of the men, if you will, and understanding that one of his gods had gone through some shit. And I looked at him and I'm like, or I looked at him and I said, chief, I said, I need this one. And he did it. And <laughs> next thing I know, you know, Christy's calling me and she's like, what's going on? And, uh, I told her, I said, this would really put an impact on me. I said, you leaving, taking our daughter, thinking about committing suicide. I don't want to be here anymore. And she says, okay. She's like, I'm leaving. I'm on my way. And she called my, my mom and my brother. My mom and my brother were still living up in Northeast Pennsylvania at the time. And I, to this day, I still don't know how they made it down here this quick, but probably less than 10 hours. Um, and I remember pulling in that night. It was a Thursday night. I remember pulling in and I remember sitting out in the driveway on the phone with the, with the intake for the federal backlog and starting the process on my end. And I remember walking in the door and just giving Christy a big hug. I mean, one, because I was, I was happy she was here, but I was, I think born ecstatic that I was trying to finally find a peace and hope with somebody I've dealt with and knowing that I was hopefully going to get the help that I needed. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know. I didn't know what the help looked like. I didn't know what the help was going to be, but I knew in my mind that the, the center of excellence is, was, was supposed to be one of the best in the country. Right, wrong, very different. Again, I, I wasn't educated by any means on PTSD, mental health, cognitive distortions, and uh, anxiety and anything like that, you go to the doctor's office and they're like, yeah, you got the person anxiety. And I'm like, okay, here's some medicine. We'll see you in a couple months. Yeah. And I, I knew I was going to get help, but I didn't know at the time what I was going for, so to speak. So that Friday morning, we, uh, just kind of hanging out around the house. I think my mom made breakfast or Christy made breakfast and we're just we're all here. It's Bria's stuck still in Pennsylvania with her, with Christie's parents. So it's just the four of us. So we're able to lack of better firms, talk like adults and trying to figure everything out. And, um, still trying to get a time frame of a bed and when I was going to go up and 11 o'clock holes around, I still haven't heard anything and I'm, at this point. I'm like, either it's hundred percent go or hundred percent leave me the fuck alone. Like I'm good now. I'm staying here. And Percy kept nagging me like, Hey, call him, call him. And I'd put it to the side and we had a couple of this and she'd walk back into the room and like, get on me. Have you called him yet? And finally I did. And I was waiting for the, uh, 
the intake nurse or charge nurse at the facility to give me a time frame, and they finally called at like I don't know one one thirty, or like it'll take you seven hours to get here. We expect you to be here at this time. Excuse me, the phone tonight. Like we will be waiting for you. And uh, so she offered to drive me back up to Maryland, and I remember obviously from Charlotte to. Uh, Clinton, Maryland, the best route was going up 95 and picking up 301 just outside of from where you're at. And it wasn't necessarily a quiet ride. We, we talked about some things. We talked about some things that had transpired. And I remember getting to Richmond and I remember getting into Hanover County and, and seeing that hotel that we had stayed at for Brad's funeral and it was like uh deja vu like all these events just started popping up and popping up and popping up and I remember the day after Brad's funeral we went up 301 and went into Southern Maryland and I stopped at a, a co-worker of mine who does tattooing and I got a tattoo to remember it to Brad and I remember just at this point all these things were popping up, but I kept saying to her, like, I'm good. You could burn around anytime now. Like I've cried enough. I've let it out. I'm good. Like turn the car around. I'm, I'm not going. And she was, she was blunt. She was, I mean, just downright brutal. She's like, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. Like you're going one way or the other, and if you don't, and I turn this car around, I'm filing for divorce, and you'll never see your daughter again. And uh, we rolled into the center of excellence about 10, 10, 30 at night. And um, I, it, it was, again, it was deja vu. We had, uh, I roomed with six other guys when I was in PG's Academy and our house that we stayed at was less than five minutes away from the center of excellence. Um, and I was like, I never thought in a million years, I'd be back in Kroom or Baden Clinton area of Prince George's County, Maryland. And here I am again. And, um, that was, that was Friday night walking into the the place that changed my life. How long did you stay? Um, so I stayed 36 days in the facility. Um, and the first 72 hours, the holding pattern, so to speak. And I got, again, I got there late Friday night, woke up the next day. Uh, there was a guy that came from another state up north and him and I did it off. And again, like I was so, my mind was going so many different ways. I didn't know which way was right or which way was left or up or down. And I don't want to say fortunately, but it was fortunate because, and this is going to sound bad. It was fortunate because he was there his second time, mm. but he knew 
the ins and outs and he knew the progression of how things kind of operated and ran long right or different. I kind of leaned on him and he was obviously many years younger and he was there for addiction, but he took me by the, by the wing, so to speak, and showed me around of what to do and not what to do. And right. And I don't want to say I, I made a friend, but I think that was a needed him in a place that I've heard about it, your expenses all around. It looks nice. It is nice. I mean, don't get me wrong. And I'm starting to relive all these things that I have just gone through over the years. And, uh, like I said, I, I spent 36 days in the facility and, um, I just, I, I can't talk enough good about the facility. You, you want to lead into how the facility kind of helped me or do you want to, that's, I mean, kind of got me. I think that we've touched, I've touched a lot on the center. Mm -hmm. I think that if we can just touch on, on what changes you made for yourself. Okay. Uh, cause I think that people listening to the show have, have gotten a pretty good idea of what the center does. And, and okay. I've had a number of people talk about center, but I'd like to hear the personal part of, about, you know, we don't have to get too in depth about it. Just what changes have you made because of what you learn? Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would say that it being in there and starting to clear the, the avalanche or the, the burdens and the luggage, that's probably a better phrase. I started unpacking my luggage, so to speak. Um, and with that being said, I started getting regimented sleep. I started, mm. I call it the nighttime cocktail of medicines that I'm on. And when, after that stuff started to kind of kick in within two weeks or so, I started to understand my purpose and my hope in life. And it wasn't until that point that I still didn't know why I was there. And once I could grasp all that and realize that there was an outlook or there was a, a another future in my life, mm -hmm. is when I, I really started to focus on making myself the number one priority, because I knew that if I could not take care of myself, there was no way I was ever going to be able to take care of my daughters or anybody else that I would be dispatched for or going to call for. And at that point, I, I really started to focus. I was getting everything I needed from the clinicians and the doctors. And I took what they told me and ran with that. And I started working on, on me and right. Uh, going to the gym, reading a ton of books, um, and having, having a whole new purpose in life and be fortunate of the life that I do have and understand that it's okay to have these feelings, but also how to work through them and 
not put them aside, but talk to them and work through them. Um, you know, things like that. So what specific tools do you, are you trying to utilize? Are there specific, are there ways that you go about your day and you, you experience something and, and then you do, to kind of triggers you into a reaction of that coping mechanism you might've learned in the center? So, yeah. And I think the biggest coping mechanism for me is, and as much as we thought about it, sometimes just isolation, like letting me go somewhere. If I have a book with me, picking up that book, cause that's something I have really come to enjoy and get my mind off of everything, get myself indulged in a book or sing, sing myself somewhere else away from the mantra or mantra of the firehouse jokes or the Franks and all these different, uh, um, shit, I can't think of the word personalities, mm-hmm. all these different personalities. And sometimes I find it that if I just kind of seclude myself for a few minutes, regain my composure, take a few deep, deep breaths, whether it's box breathing or whether it's just, just relaxing, getting my mind off certain things, or I'd still joke around, but the, the cocktail of medicine every night has helped me tremendously. When it, it's one of those things where it's, if I, if I feel that trigger come on, I, I know how to deal with it because I can go work out or pick up a book or go isolate myself for a few minutes and just decompress, get away with every, get away from everybody, everything. Let me relax. Let me reboot, so to speak. And it'd be a hundred miles an hour as soon as I'm, as soon as I'm good. And, uh, I think that's probably been the biggest thing that I've, I have found that has worked for me. I mean, and that, you know, talking to people and I've, I've been fortunate since I left the facility to be an advocate, not only for the facility, but be an advocate for telling people to talk and telling people to share. And I think that has kind of helped me too. And most recently, just even last week, obviously it gives me the added stress, but it it, it has enabled me to help other people from a different aspect of running the down the road on a fire truck mm-hmm. or being at the, at the training center or teaching somebody, it, it given me a, an avenue to be able to sit there when somebody's carrying the same luggage that I did and being mentored to them and again, walk under a walk and being able to explain to them, Hey, this is what I dealt with. This is the stuff that I went through. Like you're not alone. Like it's okay to talk. It's okay. This is what has helped me and carrying that on to somebody else. I think it's been a, a humongous help to me as well, being able to process everything over the years. you learn these tools and they seem so foreign at times and then you get used to using them and they seem so simple, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But none of it's simple because you have to stay on top of it. Oh yeah. 
So where do you think you are today? What, what, what do you, how do you think if, you know, in a nutshell, where, where are you in this journey today? I would say that, um, I definitely regained my health, my purpose in life, my purpose is my wife, mm-hmm. my two daughters and my family, the fire service being second, I still struggle some days, the balance. You know, uh, decided to go back to my master's degree next year. <laughs> I've taken the captain's process the year after, like it, it's not easy by any means, um, right? but I think that in a way I'm able to dial it back in, so to speak, or I can, I can leave work at work or I can. I can come home after a shitty day like we had yesterday, 15 runs and a farm of fire shooting and a, another, uh, building fire over the, over the night and be like, Hey, Kirsty, this is what I dealt with, but I'm, you know, I'm going to put that to the side. I'm going to go enjoy and have a lunch with my daughter at her school. You know, and I look at, I think the smaller things in life, like watching them grow up and I think I've been able to put them on the forefront now right as a higher priority and putting that work life for that yeah that work life to the second where it used to be work life first and then so i think that's where i'm at now is is finally grasping that balance of both i can still be badass fireman i want but that family's gonna support me to get me to that. And again, the, the center of excellence gave me the tools to understand and realize that, that in, I need them to get to my final goal. And if I, if I don't have them, I'm never going to get to that final goal. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were kind of getting into that sentence is you learned how to put the two together and not to not keep the two separate. Yes. Big time, big time. And now that makes for a, makes for an environment where you can, you can share parts of both with, with parts, with, with both. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Like your family can be brought into that that fire service side, but the fire service side can also now be brought into the family side, which, which was, was lacking. Like, and that's a common theme for all of us is we don't want to share that with, with each other, with our, with our friends or family or whoever, because we're just, first of all, you think, well, no one's going to understand this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's a perfect way to put it. Well, dude, we've been going for two hours and 30 minutes plus. So, and my dog's getting restless now. Um, oh, yeah. let's, uh, well, let's wrap up with my, my, with my last two questions. Okay. What is an everyday carry something you, you, you can't leave home without. So if you leave home without it, you feel naked. What's something that you have? Oh boy. Um, I'd honestly say probably, and not even a tangible thing, but just the, the love and support. Um, my girls and I know that 
I, I get it. I don't, I'm not very, very tangible type thing. Like to me, a lot, a lot of, I, I base my, a lot of myself on morals and ethics and stuff like that. And I know that if Christy and I were to get in a fight today, like my rock, my, my support group, my, my, my love would not be there. Like it, it, there would be no support walking out the door. And to me, like that would probably be the biggest things that I know mentally and physically, like I gotta be the best father I can be, be the best husband I can be. I mean, obviously not agreeing every time, but I mean, knowing that if I walk out that door, their support is what I need the most. And I, I would say that that's what I would carry the most. And again, I mean, I, I started carrying the challenge coin when I graduated mm -hmm. and I'll be honest, I could lose 15 ballpoint pens in 20 minutes. I mean, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm horrible when it comes to tangible items. I just, I don't, but I think your, I think your answer was perfect. Cause, and, and I don't always expect a tangible answer or tangible you know, item. I think that what you're saying is, is, is the most appropriate for what you just told us. Mm -hmm. All right. What's, what's, uh, what's a book you want to recommend? Something you've read that you want to, you want the audience to be introduced to. Um, oh boy. I, I read a ton of books and I, honestly, I would say, um, the most recent one was. I got to look it up now again, cause I forget the name of the book and it was actually recommended to me by Mike was, um, how to make a Marine Corps, Marine Corps leadership. Hang on. I got to look it up. No, you're good. Do you think? Okay. So it was uh, one bullet away. I think, my, yeah, I think I've heard Mike talk about that. Yeah. So he recommended that. And that book was, to me, was phenomenal. Just the way, like I said, with me transpiring to be an officer open the next year or two and the leadership side of things, I, it really made me think a lot about, uh, the way he presented himself to be an officer and the way he had his future and his goals set out for him. Right. And his family and, and balancing both was, was very important. While we're on that real quick, there is one thing I did want to mention too. Um, so, and I, I don't know if I can give them a, a plug or a shout out with leadership under fire. Um, I don't know how you can pour that in there, how you have to do it, but I'm sitting through their eight week, uh, online program. And we talked last week about, uh, the trickle tree fire and Captain Jason Bresler from FDNY and his mm -hmm. correlation with Fallujah and, uh, Captain Whitehead, who was from truck 23 in Baltimore city pig town, he built the bell, um, the correlation of him and Lieutenant Paul Butcher, who died in Trickler street. And yeah. the topic of, of discussion was, uh, I got to pull this one up too, because I will definitely push for this. But it was such a, it was such a good topic and it really made me think, especially on everything that we have just talked about 
And it was called playing to win and losing. And again, it was, you can do everything in your power, everything that you feel like is setting yourself or setting you up for success. And all it takes is one thing to take you out of the equation mm-hmm. of how you recover from that. And it, it was so impactful to me to think about where it came from and then our conversation and just that resiliency. And it was, again, it was so, so impactful. And if anybody ever has the opportunity to listen to it, is it, I don't know if we'll put it on a podcast or not, but long story short, that, that really resonated with me. Yeah, I can see how it would. You aim to win, but there's always, uh, there's almost always going to be some loss in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Dude, that, uh, thank you. Thank you for sitting down with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, I, I really, really appreciate this. I'm going to go like through said, this. We're going to figure out if this is a, a one, one episode or a two-parter, and, <laughs> and I'll let you know what we're doing with it. Sounds good. If, uh, let me. What I'm going to do is going to pause some recording here. Uh, no, we'll just talk for a minute before I let you go, okay. if, if you if you don't mind that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, thank you very much. It's it's been a it's been a fascinating journey through through the last you know what ten to twenty years of your life, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so hang tight and and we'll talk after after I stop this. All right, okay. and we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself and remember to check in on each other.